Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 as we continue to make our way week by week through this wonderful gospel. They're all bestsellers, but uh, we're in this one, so it's, it's the best. Without any further introduction, let us read together and pray for help, and then let's see what the Lord is saying to us today. Matthew 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be flogged and mocked and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They, apparently the brothers, said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten other disciples heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, there are numerous things in this passage that are not uh, immediately graspable. And so we pray as we spend these minutes pondering this text that not only would you make it clear to us what was happening and what Jesus was saying, but you would make it clear to us how we are to live in light of what you teach us in this text. So open our hearts up to you to be receptive to change and to understanding. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17, Jesus and his disciples were going up to Jerusalem. In the Jewish mind, 
Jerusalem was much more than the geographical center of Israel. In the Jewish mind, it was more than a mountaintop city that you had to climb to get to. Jerusalem, in the Jewish mind, was the center of the human universe. It was the religious and moral center of the world. It was to Jerusalem that God came down. God came down and ruled his people. Jerusalem was the civil center of the Jewish world where priests ruled with the support of their lawyers and Levites and temple police. Of course, if you pressed him, the high priest would admit that he was simply filling a role ruling in Jerusalem. He was waiting and keeping a seat warm until God's anointed king, his Messiah, arose to take up the throne of David. But it had been hundreds of years since the reign of a true Israelite king in Jerusalem. But every Israelite knew if you wanted to have influence in Israel, you had to go up to Jerusalem. If you wanted to find favor with the authorities, Jerusalem was the place to go. In Jerusalem, you could find power and privilege and prestige, at least in the Jewish world. And that was the world of Jesus' disciples. So you went up to Jerusalem in more ways than one. And who doesn't want to rise in this world? Who completes his education and gets his first job and says to himself, someday I hope to empty the trash here? I mean, even cleaning companies have ranks through which a person can rise. Who looks at his finances from the previous year and says, my goal in the coming year is to reduce my income? Who runs from being honored for his accomplishments or does things that he knows will lead to failure? We all want to rise in life. And our hope is that when this life ends, we will die in comfort and honor and with a considerable net worth. (laughs) Well, in our story here, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem and his disciples are going with him. And they have already recognized, the disciples have already recognized that Jesus is the one. Jesus is God's Messiah, his anointed king. In chapter 16, Peter and the rest of the apostles confessed, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Shortly after that, Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus transfigured by a bright heavenly light and heard God speak of Him as my beloved Son. And beyond the disciples and all that they knew and had heard, the crowds had heard Jesus' wisdom which exceeded the wisdom of Solomon. And they had seen his power to perform miracles, which exceeded that of Moses and Elijah. So in making this trip, 
up to Jerusalem, this band of disciples must have carried hopes and expectations of a glorious breakthrough as Jesus ascended his throne. But that was not to be. Not yet, anyway. Yes, Jesus would rise. He had spoken of it and of his death. But of course, everyone dies. But surely, for Jesus, this would come after a long and glorious reign. What the disciples had yet to grasp was the nature and purpose of Jesus' rule. It would be radically different from the rulers of their day, both Jewish and Gentile. And it would have a radical effect on how they would rule as apostles in the years to come. And the intention of the Holy Spirit, who is here in this place with us as a church today, his intention is that Jesus' understanding of authority and power would have a radical effect on how we live our lives as disciples. The fact of Jesus' reign in this age is that to go up, you must go down. You cannot go up without going down. But once you go up, I'm sorry, once you go down, you will find a path to rising. To go up, you must go down. You cannot go up without going down. But once you go down, you will find the path to rising. So number one of the three parts, and there are three obvious parts to this text. Number one, going up to go down. Verses 17 to 19. Before we can understand what Jesus says in these verses, we must understand the setting. Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem, but they're not going alone. There are thousands and thousands of people going with them because this is the week that precedes Passover. And faithful Jews, in keeping with the law of Moses, are making the annual pilgrimage to make sacrifice. They are most likely in the city of Jericho. Jericho was the last city before the long climb to the city of Jerusalem. There was a road that went directly from Jericho up the mountain to Jerusalem. So Jesus is joined not only by the 12, but he's also joined by others of his disciples, like the mother of James and John. So Jesus and his disciples are a part of a massive crowd making the pilgrimage to worship at the holy city. So you've got to see that. This is, this is a crowded place with a lot of people on the move. And as I said, expectations among these disciples must have been high for what Jesus would do when he arrived in the city. So he pulls the twelve aside as they're journeying and he gives them some shocking news. Let's read it again. Verse 18. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. This was shocking news. 
This is not what they were expecting. This is the third time in the gospel that Jesus has announced his death by violence. In chapter 16, it says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he's told them before. And then in chapter 17, following his transfiguration, as they gathered in Galilee to prepare to make the trip south toward Jerusalem, he told them again, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And Matthew records that this caused great distress among the disciples. A great distress, but it never seemed to sink in given all that they knew about Jesus, all they had seen and heard, they could not grasp how this dying part fit in with the rest of the story. You look at somebody who's able to raise the dead, stop storms, confront corrupt religious leaders, and you think, this guy can do anything. So this stuff about dying, it just fades. But they learn in verses 18 and 19 some new information about how Jesus' death is to come about. In verse 18 it says, He will be delivered. He will be delivered. Others will take control of His life. And He will be passive in the process. In verse 18, we learn that the chief priests and scribes, the religious rulers of the nation, will condemn him. That word, condemn him, means there will be a legal proceeding in which, which results in a verdict of guilty and a sentence of death. In verse 19, we learn that the rulers of the Jews will then hand Jesus over to the Gentiles, the Romans, because the Romans forbade the Jews from executing anyone. And then in verse 19, we learn that the Romans will then mock Jesus, flog him until his back is a bloody mass of exposed muscle and nerve, and then crucify him, a method of execution the Romans reserved for those they considered the most notorious criminals. And then Jesus adds, it almost seems like a footnote, he'll be raised on the third day. Apart from the mention of resurrection, this is horrible news. They'd heard it in general two times before, now they hear it in detail. Now, prophecy, and Jesus is making a prophecy, Prophecy serves more than the purpose of calling us to God. Prophecy serves to show us that God is in complete control even when he or his people seem to be the passive objects of the wrath of the world. As the disciples watched the horrific acts of the coming week unfold, they must have realized that though Jesus seemed to be a simple pawn in the power politics of the Sanhedrin and the Roman government. In fact, God was behind it all. He told them ahead of time. So we have 
prophecy in Scripture about the future so that when things go south real quick on us, we can say, but I know the end of the story. And he told me this is part of the program. Luke tells the same story that we see in verses 17 through 19, but he adds one telling comment on the disciples' response to Jesus' announcement. This is what Luke writes after Jesus tells them this. He says, the disciples understood none of these things. I get it. I I really do. Sometimes we just can't comprehend how massive evil can come upon good people. And so we force it out of our minds. Or we focus on the promise at the end. Yeah, going to be a little rough spot there for a while, but he'll be raised. (laughs) Jesus is telling them that for him to go up to his throne, he he must first go down. Down into betrayal and death. Number two, I mentioned going up without going down. The story of this mom making a request of Jesus for her two sons is is just jarring given what Jesus has just said. And if you read the scholars... And I actually find the scholars kind of humorous because they don't seem to have much of an imagination for creative and uh, hum- just human events, the way they work. They say, well, this, this can't be actually real because she, well, <laughs> it fits perfectly into the direction of the gospel. Remember, mom wasn't present when Jesus announced his impending death, okay? Jesus took the 12 aside. So she was a part of Jesus' company making the pilgrims to Jerusalem for the feast. And her sons, the sons of Zebedee, are James and John. Now here's what mom knew about her sons. They were among the first disciples called on the first day Jesus chose disciples. It was Peter and Andrew and then James and John. She knew they left their father's fishing business to follow Jesus. So they'd made great sacrifice to follow him. James and John had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder. And it may be that their lack of timidity came from their mom. (laughs) Because she's making a bold request. What she was asking was that when Jesus assumes his throne, her two sons would be closest to him. If you sat at the king's right hand, you had glory and honor second only to the king. And this mom wanted it for both of her sons. Now, I need to stop here just for a moment, and I need to say a few words in defense of moms. Especially moms of boys. Moms see their boys' talents, their hard work, their hardships and disappointments, 
and they want to see them succeed in the world. And they'll do anything to help them. In our day, we have this designation of certain moms known as tiger moms. And this lady may be an ancient version of just that. Now, her request was not unreasonable. As I mentioned, James and John were called by Jesus on the same day that Jesus called Peter and Andrew. So they were Jesus' first disciples. James and John, along with Peter, were with Jesus when he was transfigured in glory. And in chapter 19, Jesus said to the twelve, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they've all been told already that you're getting a throne. James and John's mom assumed that since the twelve were getting thrones, her boys deserved the first and the best. Naturally. It's just obvious, isn't it? She asked the question, but her sons were right there with her. So it's a, it's a little bit of a pathetic setting, at least in my view, because the boys are coming with mom. She kneels down and makes this request, and they're standing there. And Jesus actually ignores her and answers them. You do not know, you, James and John, do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And still, they didn't get it. They didn't get that to go up, you must first go down. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? The metaphor of the cup has deep roots in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 51, the Lord calls Israel to wake up to her sins and repent following their experience of God's judgment. It's as if they are in a drunken stupor. And so the Lord says to them, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. And I could read numerous other verses from the Psalms and the prophets that refer to the cup of God's wrath. James and John understood, likely understood, little of what Jesus was asking. Okay, he says, are you able to drink this cup? And they go, absolutely. We've been with you. We've been with you from the beginning. Haven't left. They did not get Jesus' prophecy that he would soon be mocked, flogged, and crucified. But James and John were loyal followers. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He takes their response at face value. They are able to join Jesus in drinking this horrible cup. So Jesus affirms their response. Yeah, we're ready. Even though they don't get it, they're ready. And we know the rest of the story. James was the first apostle to be martyred. 
was put to death by Herod as recorded in Acts chapter 12. And if John the Apostle is the same John who wrote Revelation, which I think is likely, he ended up alone in an exile on the barren island of Patmos. James and John would both drink from the cup of suffering. Then Jesus says something that, once again, it's just surprising. He informs them that the seats of honor are not his to give. Now you think you're the king. You can tell anybody to sit. He says, no, I'm subordinate to my father. I'm under his authority. He'll decide who sits on my right and my left. This is nothing like the rulers of the Gentiles. Now I want to stop for a minute. And I want us to just take a minute to think about how we have engaged with Jesus. Now, I'm I'm speaking to those who believe in Jesus and are seeking to follow him. We come to Jesus because we see the benefits, divine protection, forgiveness of our sins, promise of eternal life in heaven with the Lord, provision for all our needs. But do you realize that along with all these good things, there are other promises of hardship, of deprivation, of persecution. Are you willing to follow Jesus in his dying? Just as willing as you are to follow him in his rising. Peter and, I'm sorry, James and John, they got it, but they didn't. But by the grace of God, they endured to the end. Imagine how this must have affected them as they witnessed the death of their Lord just one week later. And they came to realize that before they inherited any glorious throne, They must follow their Lord and go down in suffering and shame. And that leads us to the last section of this text. Going down to go up. Going down to go up. Verses 24 through 28. In verse 24, when the other ten disciples get wind of this audacious request Matthew records they were indignant at the two brothers. Now that word indignant, it means they were angry and personally offended. And this was not righteous anger, okay? They wanted status and the perks that come with status just as much as the two brothers. So it wasn't a concern for the right ordering of the kingdom. It was, it was like, hey, how'd you get ahead of us? And this is why Jesus must teach all of them about his authority so that they will understand what authority looks like as a disciple of Christ. This is radically different from anything this world will ever tell you. Let's... Let's just look at it again. Verse 25. Let's start there. Jesus called them 
Okay, so they called all the disciples to him and said, You, all you disciples, know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay, that's how the world rules. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples, even James and John, in making this request for the special seats, they're looking at authority, they're looking at someone's rule in the context of the rulers of the Gentiles. You see those two words, the Gentiles, they lord it over and exercise authority. These words do not imply an abuse of power, but an attitude toward power. Each word begins with a suffix that refers to pushing something down or a downward motion. The rulers of the Gentiles use their power down on those below them to get what they want. The focus of their authority is getting things done for them. Their desire is to achieve their own ends for their own selfish purposes. And so they see those under them as those they can push down upon as tools of power. Now, do you get that? that that's how most people view authority. You're under me to get things done for me. Jesus tells us, it shall not be so among you. So we've got to have a totally different attitude toward authority. This passage is not a denial of authority. It's not a denial of rule. It's an attitude toward it. Those who are great in Jesus' kingdom must use the power of their office to serve others, not themselves. Those who want the prestige of being first must use their position with the attitude of a slave serving at someone else's direction. This is how Jesus came. Not to be served, but to serve. This is astounding. Jesus Christ, Creator and King of the universe, came to serve us. And so he becomes the model for anyone who has the power or prestige or privileges of authority. And who has more authority on this earth than Jesus? Now, this has been dubbed in our evangelical circles servant leadership. And I want to stop and I want you to think about what servant leadership is for a moment because I think 
for some of us, it has been badly misunderstood. And so subtle that you can miss it. Servant leadership isn't asking people what they want and then using your authority to get it for them. Have you ever observed a family where the parents give their children whatever they ask for? They serve the child like a slave. It might begin with his demands for nursing whenever he thinks he needs milk and proceeds to being indulged with every other kind of entertainment or pleasure that he might want. Whenever life is hard, this parent serves by removing the hardship. That is not the servant life Jesus has in mind here. I've seen husbands serve their wives. Say, I need to be a servant leader. That's, isn't that what Ephesians 5 teaches about the husband? Lay down his life for his wife. And so they serve their wives by giving them whatever they want without considering what might be best for them according to the life Jesus calls us to. I've seen pastors ask their church what kind of programs or sermons they might want and then shape their ministries around that. This is what animated a lot of the church growth seeker sensitive movement. Find out what people want and show them how they can have it in Jesus. That is not servant leadership. And it is not how Jesus leads us. If you walked with them long enough, you get this. To serve from a position of greatness is to seek to use your position to give people what is best for them. To give people what they need, not necessarily what they want. To serve as a slave is to use your position of power under God's direction, even if it leads you to loss or to harm. Jesus exercised His authority under the authority of His Father in heaven. God the Father, in love for the world, sent His Son into the world so that He could save His people from the judgment and wrath they deserved. That's how He rolled with authority. For the rulers of the Gentiles, position, power, and prestige is all about me. And I push down those beneath. For the disciples of Jesus, position, power, and prestige best for those under them. And what is best for them is to live their lives in conformity with the words and will and life of their Savior, King. Do you see the difference? We're leading and I mean, if, if you're an older brother or sister, everybody in this room typically has some kind of authority. If you're leading for your own comfort or your own honor, you're, not lead, you're leading like the Gentiles. But if you're leading as you follow Christ and use your position to lead people into the goodness that He has defined and promised, you are leading as a servant leader. And the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' rule for the good of his people is found at the end of verse 28. The Son of Man came to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Nobody was asking Jesus to die on their behalf. The people in the Gospel accounts had no grasp of their need to be ransomed until after the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Okay, people weren't walking around saying, wish we had a Messiah here to die for us. Oh, when Messiah comes, he's going to be a sacrifice. He's going to be like a sacrificed lamb. Nobody thought that. This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death, but it's the first time that he stated the purpose behind his death. So what you're seeing here in, in leading up to the week of Jesus' passion, what you're seeing is he's saying, this is the purpose. I've told you I'm going to die and rise. I told you I'm going to be killed by the chief priests and the scribes. But now I'm telling you why I am accepting as a passive recipient the horrors of their injustice. He came to die as a ransom. He came to pay the ultimate price for the deliverance of his people. That's the purpose. He came to serve. Even if that meant suffering under the control of a wicked high priest and a pandering Roman ruler. He came to die for a people who did not know they needed him to die for them. He wasn't asking around, what do you think you need? He was telling them, you need me to die for you. This is servant leadership. This is greatness. This is how you use any position of power or prestige to further the purpose of God to save a people for himself, to pay a price with your life for their deliverance in Jesus. Now, none of us None of us can pay for someone else's sins. If we were to die in payment for sins, it would be for our own. But we can follow Jesus and lay down our lives to lead other people to him and his ways. The disciples could only learn this by watching Jesus allow himself to be betrayed, falsely accused, unjustly condemned, viciously mocked, and brutally flogged and crucified. They watched all these things as they'd been told they were going to happen. They watched Jesus serve as a slave for the good of others. He laid aside his position of prestige and power and privilege so that others might be delivered from the power and eternal penalty of their sin. That's greatness. That's authority in action. Do you want to be great? Do you want the seat of honor? Give your life away to serve others. Following the example of Jesus who gave his life away to serve others. Not to give them what necessarily what they asked for, but to give them what they need. Which is often beyond their comprehension. Because what do we ultimately, every human being on this earth needs? 
but the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Jesus Christ as King. By going down, living the life of a servant for the good of others, you will one day rise with Jesus Christ. You will go up to the heavenly Jerusalem where Jesus already sits on his throne ruling for the glory of God and the good of his people forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you please, by your Spirit, help us to embody this attitude and how we treat all the people around us and especially those people over whom we have some level of authority. Let us not take our cues from the rulers of the Gentiles. Their greatness is rewarded with vast wealth, homes comfortable beyond imagination, banquets in their honor. We reject that. There's only one banquet we want to go to, and that's to sit at your table in your honor. And so teach us, whether we are a young child or old and human frailty is upon us, teach us to use whatever means we have, not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives away the way our saving King gave his life away with him as our chief example and model. We ask for this in his name, Father. Answer this and change our hearts, we ask you. Amen.